Hi, it's Rafara. I just wanted to quickly tell you that this episode is about mental health and includes conversations about depression, anxiety, and briefly mentioned suicide. If any of these topics are difficult for you, feel free to skip this episode. Next week will be a lot more upbeat. If you do listen to the episode and are affected by any of the topics we mention, I'll have links and phone numbers you can reach out to for support, both in the description and during this episode. Okay, here we go. How do you really feel? Give me the full, unabridged, uncensored version. Because ever since the pandemic hit, my feelings have been changing by the minute. Sometimes I feel scared. Sometimes I feel really sad. Sometimes I feel like everything is out of my control. But then sometimes I feel at peace, really happy, and like any second now, everything is going to make sense. But then things change and I feel unmoored again. I was listening to Firework by Katy Perry the other day and almost cried because sometimes I do be feeling like a plastic bag. The pandemic has infiltrated almost every area of our lives and mental health is no exception. From newly qualified nurses feeling the strain of starting work on the front line, to events management graduates stepping into the workforce at a time when their industry is more uncertain than ever. The pandemic is making it really difficult for students and recent graduates to manage their mental health, bringing to light thoughts that are harder to handle in isolation and creating new and complex things to worry about. You are listening to Class of 2020, a podcast about studying, graduating and coming of age in the midst of a pandemic. I'm Rafaro, and this week we're going to be exploring student and graduate mental health, looking at how young people have been affected by the pandemic, talking about the ways that the transitions between going to university and graduating affect us, and showcasing some of the ways that students and universities are working to create more open conversations about mental health and help young people to manage theirs. Episode 6, How Do You Really Feel? So over the past couple of months, I've spent a lot of time thinking, too much time thinking actually, and it's gotten to the point where every half an hour to 10 minutes, I get up from my desk, walk to the other side of the house and give my little sister updates as to where I'm at with the quarter life crisis I've been in since the end of March. This is the first time that I haven't known where I'm going to be in three months. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) I'm trying to share my feelings with you and you're having a nap. I can't pay you too. Why can't you pay attention? Why are you having a nap when I'm pouring out my troubles to you? Because if I give you a reaction, it'll come off as me. Give me the reaction. Hit me. Oh, Hit me. I'm already me. low. You can't kick me. You can't kick me. I'm already on the ground. Say. Tell me. Why are you bothering me? <laughs> you're so rude, rude. I'm having a quality crisis and you're taking a nap. But in all seriousness, like a lot of final year students or new graduates I know, over the past couple of months, I've been feeling like I'm in limbo. Like one part of my life has ended unexpectedly and that the part I'm in right now doesn't make any sense. I've finished uni, but it doesn't feel that way because it ended in such a strange way. I'm technically a graduate, but it doesn't feel that way because I'm back at home in the room that reminds me of my 17 year old self. And while I'm slowly learning to be at peace with the fact that my life right now doesn't look or feel the way that my September self had thought it would, the lack of certainty is incredibly destabilizing. 
The only way I've been able to describe it is that life as a recent graduate right now, for me at least, feels like walking in the dark with a pretty dim torch. I can only see my immediate surroundings. I can only walk as fast as I would feel safe walking when I can't see what's ahead of me. And at any point I could bump into something mundane, terrifying or magical. And that sounds like exciting and philosophical when I tell that to myself, but in reality, stress. I keep telling myself that everything's fine, which I only say when I really need to reassure myself that everything is fine. But the uncertainty of life right now isn't making me feel great. And I'm not the only one. A survey last year found that 49% of graduates reported that their mental health declined after leaving university. It's a statistic that a lot of people I've spoken to over the course of making this podcast have seen in their own lives. And there are so many reasons why that's the case. From finding a job to trying to navigate your finances, seeing your friendships change to feeling like you're left behind, life after university can be really difficult. So I spoke to Molly Davis, a graduate and journalist who wrote an incredibly insightful article about post-university depression. So my name's Molly Davis. Um, it's funny saying my last name. I never say that when people ask me my name. Um, and I went to Cardiff University. Um, I studied history and English literature. Molly went to university in her hometown, which meant that she was able to live with her family and have an easy commute to campus while also making really good friends on her course. Her three best friends from university lived in a student house in her hometown, and throughout her degree, Molly felt as if she was the unofficial fourth housemate. The friendships were ones that she really valued and made her university experience what it was. But like a lot of recent graduates, with the end of university came changes. That's something that I've talked about a lot, actually, the experience of how I felt those first couple of days after I graduated and then the months following. In some ways, not as many things changed as they did for my friends. I woke up in the same house and going clubbing for me or or going to a cafe, it wasn't like, oh, I really miss that because it, it was the stuff that I've always done and I still always can do. But what really stuck out for me was that everyone assumes that, that the people who will miss you the most are the ones that have moved back home to a completely new place. Maybe they live on a farm and they've gone to a uni in London and it's a completely different experience. But for me, it, and I talked a lot about this in an article I wrote, it became like I was walking in the city centre and I would walk down a street and I'd get really upset because I didn't, all those people I was passing in the street were faces I'd never seen ever before. And Cardiff is a very much a place where um, it's not a campus uni, but there's one long road one way and one long road off the other side and basically you can get right from the city centre of the shops to all the bars and clubs are on two different streets and then all the houses are in one tiny area so everyone is sort of at nine o'clock everyone is all walking in one direction it's not like being in a big city that you assume there are students dotted around it is literally it's just covered and I got quite upset about that and I really missed having them here and I sort of realised that it wasn't for me that I was missing not being in uni, not having lectures. I could easily get on with that. It was more about my friends I was really missing, that it wasn't like I was going home to all my school friends and my home and I could be glad that I was home because I've been home the whole time. 
When we talk about life after graduation, we often talk about the experience of leaving your university town, going back home or moving to a new city. But for Molly, life after university was a case of being in the place she'd made all of her university memories in without the people she'd made those memories with. Feeling at home but without the familiar faces and life she loved. And alongside that feeling was that of being in limbo, in an uncomfortable in-between period as she applied for jobs, tried to navigate the start of her career and adjust to no longer being in that familiar and vibrant university bubble. In her Cosmopolitan article, Molly wrote about falling into a downward spiral after finishing university. So we spoke about how she came out of it well it it was so real and such a grim time and to pull myself out of that there was a huge divide for me I had to sort of make that really clear in my head of I've got to let go of the things that I can't control and I can't have any more from my previous sort of not life but from what used to be and what can I keep and really emphasize on so my friends I'd made through uni um, especially Ellie Ellen and Rosie which I'm surprised I haven't mentioned names for now just because people wouldn't know them I don't want to say and make you assume you know who I mean but those three girls are still my very best friends now and so rather than thinking oh I'm done with uni and that means I can't see them anymore or have I got to let that part of my life go and feeling like it was gone because they don't live around the corner I really made sure I hung on to that and saw them as much as I could and spoke to them as much as I could and those things that I loved about our friendship and our relationship and the things that made us laugh and the things that we did together kept those going and kept I don't know, the films that we loved watching, if I watched it, I'd make sure to talk to them about it. And just because they were far away, I made sure that that connection and those conversations we'd have every day were very much still there. And that was the part that I realised I'd missed most and I didn't have to let go of. Universities have been dealing with a real mental health crisis over the past couple of years. Financial difficulties, academic pressure, social isolation, stressful living environment and complicated transitions have all contributed to the rise in students and graduates reporting mental health issues. And with many students having to wait months before they even get to speak to a counsellor, universities are having to find new ways to help students manage their mental health. And so, I reached out to an academic who's doing exactly that. Hi, my name is Bruce Hood. I'm a professor of developmental psychology and society at the University of Bristol. In 2018, Bruce launched the Science of Happiness course at the University of Bristol, a course all about how to improve your well-being and manage your mental health. And so I asked him about how he developed it. A couple of years ago, we had a real problem at Bristol University in terms of student mental well-being issues. We had a spate of suicides, and it's not that Bristol is a toxic environment or a bad university. I think it was just unfortunately just one of those things that we had a cluster of these. And this brought a lot of attention and concern uh, focused on Bristol and started speaking to students and I think there was a groundswell of students also talking about mental well-being issues and of course these these terrible events just brought it into sharp relief so I decided that you know something needed to be done and I was really pleased to discover that a former student of mine who I taught when I was at Harvard Laurie Santos is now She's had a sort of amazing career and uh, she's now this sort of head of a residential college at Yale University. So she was encountering her students that she has to look after as the senior president of the college. 
And they were coming to her with lots of problems. And that led me to think, this is a problem right across the student body. And what Laurie had done to tackle it, I thought was brilliant. She put together a course called Psychology in the Good Life. And it, she opened it up to any students. So this wasn't just for psychology students. And it became an overnight sensation. It was the most successful course in the history of Yale. Something like 800 students signed up for it. So when I discovered this, I contacted her and said, hi, Laurie, you know, can we share good practice? And she shared me her slides. But basically, it combines kind of the theory of emotions and the psychology of well-being with practical advice. So I took her course and I developed what I call the science of happiness. And so we came up with a course which really captures some of the enthusiasm, some of the passion behind this topic, and, and some of the history, because I think it's something when you start to look into the topic of happiness, it's, it's something which, when you think about it, is at the core of a lot of human endeavor. I mean, everybody wants to be happier, uh, and we're all pursuing goals in life which we think will make us happy, whether it's designing a bridge or making money on the stock market or fashion or music or whatever. Everyone is doing things with ultimately the mot motivation to be happier. So I, I looked at the whole area, it's a vast area, and I decided, well, here's some of the history, here's some of the philosophy, here's some of the economics of it, uh, and that's the way we approached it. We begin by talking about what is this thing we call happiness, how do you define it, how do the ancient philosophers define it, and then we turn our attention to some of the misconceptions about what makes you happy. And surprisingly, you know, people think that getting great marks in their exams will make them ultimately happy or earning a huge salary is going to be the number one thing. If you ask students what do they want, they typically want really good salaries. And that's of course, and that makes a lot of sense. And if you'd asked me as an undergraduate, I would have said exactly the same thing. But what we do know is that in the long term, you tend to get used to them. You habituate, as we say in science, or you get this thing we call hedonic adaptation. You just get used to things. And so you go after the next big thing. So we're on this constant treadmill of trying to get more and more things. The things we pursue are not necessarily going to make us happy. So I'll explain why that's the case. Um, there's a little bit of neuroscience in there, so we explain why our brains just are biased to make errors all the time, to pursue the wrong things in life. And, and then we shift the whole lecture course from the kind of the theory behind it into, well, what does make us happy? What can you do to uh, change your, your well-being? And we review all the evidence. And in addition to the lectures, they're getting kind of homeworks. So, you know, we might set them a task for a week where they have to be kind to other people, three acts of kindness, or we might get them to do something like write a gratitude letter. That's where you've got to identify somebody in your life that you've never properly thanked and you write this letter. And so these are the processes where you're getting people to reflect upon their own mental states, their own mental well-being, and to document it. So a lot of the course involves students keeping diaries and journaling their experiences on the course. And of course, they have these weekly mentor meetings where they meet with other students and they meet other fellow students. And what's really cool about that is normally in first year, you're kind of siloed into the same topic. So you only meet students really in the same class as you. But the way that we've done it, because there's students from so many dis disciplines, in these small groups, they get to meet physicists or architects or French majors or whatever. And so it's a really good way of mixing up the interaction in the first year. And they love it. I mean, the feedback is fantastic. And again, as I said, we, we do these evaluations and everything seems to show that these, this is having a lasting impact on the students. I delivered this two years ago and then the first year it was just a voluntary thing. And it works so well that the university decided to make it actually a core open unit for all students at Bristol University. So in the last year we've been running this and, and you can get course credit for doing it. Uh, and what makes it unique 
is that there are no exams. Rather, you get the credit for the course by engagement and participation. So that's attending the lectures. But students also have to go to weekly, we call them happiness hubs, which are mentored by senior students, where they reflect about the content of the exam, uh, sorry, the content of the lectures, there are no exams, but they also engage in activities and do homework and, and reflect upon the messages that we're you know, delivering in the lectures. And I've done this several times now. What makes me really very satisfied about it is that we actually measure well-being in these students before the course and we measure it at the end and then we do a statistical analysis. And time and time again, we've shown that students who take the course experience a rise in mental well-being in comparison to students who, who are controlled, who haven't done the course or they're waiting to take the course. So yeah, it's been, a, it's been a big success and our numbers are growing. We're getting more and more students this year and we're exporting it to Cardiff University. So we're going to hopefully kind of offer this to lots of universities. No, that's so good. It's good to see that impact because I think it's one of those things that we're not necessarily raised and taught how to manage our well-being. It's more like you're taught how to go to school, how to do get a job, those like really important things. But you can have all those things and not be happy. So yeah, it's a really, really interesting course. So I had a question for you about COVID and the effect that it's having on students. So a lot of people are like facing increased levels of anxiety or low mood as a consequence of like the effects that the pandemic has had on their lives. So that could be on their yeah. finances, on job hunting, that kind of thing. So do you have any tips from the course that you think students could apply to their lives right now for how to manage your well-being during times of crisis? Yeah, actually, we, we ran a, an online version of the course. So the course is normally over 12 weeks. But because of the lockdown, the university contacted me and said, look, is there anything you can do for actually staff and students? And so we developed a one-month version of the course. And I boiled it down to four lectures. The first is really an introduction and why we misconceive happiness. But the second was really about trying to regulate your emotions. Because I think elevated moods and depressed moods, and, and a lot of it is to do with a lack of structure and control. So when you're forced into a situation which is unpredictable, namely a lockdown or a pandemic, uh, it generates a lot of anxiety about the future. And so you start to panic or you worry where you're going to have a job, where you're going to graduate. And so that's a sort of a you know, stress-inducing situation. So we teach, for example, the way you can reframe situations to find them less stressful. Uh, so for a very, here's a simple tip. In one of the exercises, we get people to sort of identify what is, the, what is something that you're really worried about. Identify exactly what you're afraid of. Like, for example, I may not you know, get a job after I graduate, there won't be any jobs for me. And then, I, and then what we get them to do is we get them to challenge that, okay, to, to, to articulate what the problem is, to write it down, which is the best way of actually dealing with your mental thoughts, and then come up with alternatives. So you give yourself a score of anxiety before you do this process, how worried am I about this? You then identify what the problem is, and then you have to come up with alternative ways of considering it. And then you rescore yourself on your anxiety level. And invariably, your scores go back down as you've actually processed the information. Because the big problem with a lot of emotions is that we try to deal with everything inside our head. And this creates ruminations and negative thoughts go round and round. And because our brains are wired to seek problems and seek out problems, this is what we focus on. And that's the problem. It's the rumination, the spiral of despair. And if you can break that spiral of despair by documenting it or journaling it or directly challenging it, 
then you'll find that you actually process it much more effectively. So that's just one simple technique that we do. We talk about the importance of sleep. You know, there's been some really interesting things about sleep. I don't know if you've noticed this, but people's dreaming is becoming more vivid while they're in lockdown. Mine have became so vivid. <laughs> it's fascinating from a science point of view, from a neuroscience point of view, why is that happening? Well, we're not really sure is the honest answer to that, but it might be something to do with the disruption of our normal routines. The brain is working over time and processing information, but it does create this real interesting phenomenon that people are having extraordinarily vivid dreams at the moment. But yeah, dealing with problems, it's, it's really a case of just trying to process them in the right way. And I think journaling is another thing I would recommend to students. Write it down, keep a diary. I mean, we're going to come out with this the other end, okay? So the pandemic will not go on forever. And I really ask students to kind of, this is an opportunity to live through an amazing time. I don't mean that in a possible way, but it is a bizarre experience. It's unprecedented, as everyone keeps saying. And it's really important to keep track of what you did during the COVID situation. You know, how did you spend that time? Because uh, you'll be able to tell your, your grandchildren. And that's why I get people to do is to not think about the immediate kind of worries and concerns but try to project themselves not three months down the road but three years down the road or 30 years down the road and looking back on this time so again it's reframing the situation put a more positive spin on it the original yale science of well-being course is available for free on the website coursera i'll link it in the description of this episode and if you want to find out more about bruce and his work you can find him at prof bruce hood on twitter One thing that Bruce mentioned that we're going to explore a lot more in next week's episode is the idea of doing good, of the small and big actions we can take in this uncertain time to positively shape the world around us. Over the past couple of years, there has been a rise in campaigns and movements to destigmatize the way we speak about mental health and to encourage people to have more open conversations about how they really feel. And one of the organisations that has been leading these conversations is Student Minds, the UK student mental health charity that works to empower students and members of the university community to look after their own mental health, support others and create change. So I reached out to one of their ambassadors to talk about their men's mental health campaign and how the pandemic has changed conversations around it. My name's Billy and I go to the University of Leeds, third year student, study you know, biology and the history and philosophy of science and I'm a part of Student Minds uh, Men's Mental Health Committee. I asked Billy about his university experience. You know, my university experience has been pretty great all in all. But like a lot of students, Billy experienced both highs and lows during university. First year especially, I had you know quite a rough time. I remember coming into like uni thinking, you know, I had all these like big expectations what it was going to be. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time at school, especially kind of aiming towards uni. And, you know, I had this, this grand image of what it was going to be like in my head. And then we get into uni and it was, it was such a shock to the system, you know going into halls in first year, you know, it can be quite you know, like a lonely and isolating experience. But, you know, I just, I kind of persevered through, I, you know, I wanted to drop out at certain points, like, but, you know, I kept going through, but yeah, I just, I found a lot of the time in first year, you know, I felt like I was doing everything I was to, you know, I was going out and drinking, you know, I was uh, doing the clubbing and the socialising, I made some great friends, I was doing great on my course, but, you know, I was still struggling a lot with, you know, feeling very anxious and overwhelmed a lot of the time. And then, you know, I found that very difficult because it, you know, it kind of was the first time in my life, you know, where I was, you know, on my own, having to live independently and also having these kind of new feelings because I never had to address any of that kind of stuff before. But yeah, in first year, it actually got to one point I ended up losing about two stone because I just wasn't really, you know, looking after myself or paying attention because I never had to. So yeah, first year, it was it was kind of difficult, but it was, you know, as many lows as it was highs. And, you know, going into second and third year, I found it ended up, you know, 
being a really great experience. I've learned a lot from this kind of times, and you know, it's one of one of the reasons I've got so involved with this uh, mental health committee because I realised that you know it's not just me going through these situations, and it wasn't it didn't have to be as isolating as I, as I found it to be because you know once I started you know connecting to people and talking about it and learning these these skills that you know a lot of people don't have when they come to uni to talk about their well-being. You know, I ended up you know feeling so much better about it. So Billy told me more about the mental health campaign he got involved with through the charity Student Minds. It all started off actually. I saw it on, it was advertised on one of the university pages and I was just you know, scrolling through and I thought, oh, do you know, I could, you know, I could, you know, maybe give a bit of perspective to that. So, you know, I applied to it and then, you know, I got through to the interviews and they did a lot of, you know, they were like, we want students that, you know, can give their perspective on it. We don't want, you know, experts. We don't want people telling students what they want. We want the students to, you know, really have a lead on it. And you know, I think we have all this big kind of stress on experts by experience almost. And it's it's a phrase I've come to love because, you know, I don't I don't know anything more than the other person, but you know, I've had experiences that a lot of people can, you know, identify with, I'm trying to think of a better word than identify, but you know, they kind of understand. And I think, you know, hearing someone in a similar situation, you know, kind of leading the way for trying to make these, you know, campus mental health better is I think it's probably one of the best ways to go about it. And then he talks specifically about campaigning around men's mental health. Every day when like mental health day comes around, everyone's like, men need to talk more, men need to talk more. But then, you know, they don't tell them how to talk. They're just like, why aren't you talking? That's always what happens. And it kind of, it dulls down and the next year comes around and everyone's like, men need to be talking more about their mental health. And I'm like, it's always a a bit daunting, really. I think with men's mental health, you know, it's it's a very different experience for a lot of people to, you know, um, what women go through. Women are more used to talking to their friends. That's what I've definitely noticed. Whereas men, you know, they prefer to kind of form these habits where they kind of don't address how they're feeling or they don't want to talk about it and it's it's quite difficult so i think men's mental health especially in this pandemic is something that really needs to have a bit of focus on because you know everyone's forcing to kind of you know have to look at themselves and improve their well-being and take these active steps and i think probably a bit of a bold statement here but i think men are probably less used to doing that and i think you know that needs so much more attention so billy shared his top piece of advice for people still learning how to open up and talk to people they trust about their mental health never talk about anything you're not uncomfortable to talk about and you've got to find the right people to talk to because some people you know you don't want to have that experience of opening up to someone and then not being the sort of person who's going to you know actively listen to you and want to help I think finding the right person to talk to is probably the hardest part but then once you do like just go forward to those conversations like there's very few people in your life that you know, care about you that you know don't want to hear about these kind of things you know, you're never a burden to the people that, you know, love you and that are around you. So I think a lot of people need to just keep that in mind and try and open up as best as they can. Yeah, no, for sure. And I feel like it's literally just one of those things, like the more you do it, the more comfortable you get. Because I do have some friends who are a little bit more closed off. You know, you can tell that someone wants to speak, but they don't feel comfortable doing it. And it's like the more you do it. And like, I feel like the more good experiences you have, the better, like the more likely you are to have those kind of conversations. Cause like, I know definitely there's been times where I've spoken to people, like specific people about things and it hasn't been like a good conversation. And then it's like, I'm not going to do it. But then each time you try, it gets a little bit better. It depends with who you're talking to. I mean, <laughs> I live with six, six other girls. Yeah. So it's uh, one boy and six girls. So, you know, I'm used to, very used to sitting down and talking about my emotions and feelings and stuff. But I think with my, like my brother, for example, we kind of started off a relationship where I'd be like, oh yeah, no, uni's, uni's a bit hard, it's kind of difficult. And then he was like, yeah, and then it's kind of build up and I'll just call him and I'll be like, I'm having a breakdown, this is awful. And yeah. you know, it, with that was a very kind of steady build up. But now we have this kind of fantastic relationship and ability to just, you know, kind of talk about whatever and it's it's not a big deal. And it's, you know, it's, it feels so nice being able to talk to people like that around you. It really, really is like a skill that you have to practice. And I think, um, 
I don't know, with men especially, I don't think they ever really practice that. So when you do end up in these situations where your mental health or your well-being is put at risk or you're feeling a lot more down, like you don't have those skills because you need that practice. It's just as much as about, you know, when you're feeling really good, talking about the times you felt bad. I, in my experience anyway, as, you know, talking about stuff when you're feeling really, really low, because that, that's when it's easiest. If you're having a good day and you turn around and you're like, oh, do you know, well, a few months ago, this was difficult. Yeah. That's so much easier than being, you know, in that place and having to do that huge jump into the diet, <laughs> the deep end to open Definitely. up to people. It's, it, it's a hard thing. It's, it's something people you know you need to practice and get used to because I mean now like I'll start rambling on about everything and anything that I've ever been feeling or thinking which I never used to be when coming into uni first year but you yeah. know it's it's yeah it's a, it's a great way to feel actually it feels fantastic to be able to open up in that kind of way and the best outcome of this is everyone's being a lot more open about the way they're feeling mm-hmm. I think because everyone's going through this collective hard time no one's really got this feeling of you know I'm on you know I'm on my own I don't know what to do there's a lot more, you know, everyone's going through it. And I've noticed with my friends and a lot of people on the rounds, they can you know, open up a lot easier now, which is kind of a silver lining of, you know, this whole pandemic going on. But I think it's, I think it's a really nice thing that's happened. I think a lot, a lot of like fears that people have is, you know, like, oh, well, what will people think if I tell them this? What will they think of me? But now you can't see anyone, you know, you don't have to worry too much about that. Because if you don't want to talk to someone, you don't have to talk to them. It's a lot easier. <laughs> If you want to find out more about Student Minds, get access to a wide range of resources to help you manage your mental health, or get involved with an awareness campaign like the men's mental health campaign that Billy mentioned, you can find them at www.studentminds.org.uk. The past couple of months have definitely taken their toll. From separating us from the people we love to making us feel scared, isolated, and uncertain about the future. When I was writing the script for this episode, I really wanted to end it with some beautiful metaphor or perfectly wrapped up conclusion that's inspiring and makes you walk away from it, feeling reassured and like everything is gonna be okay. But I couldn't find the words to do that because like everyone I've spoken to, I'm still just trying to figure it out. And if you feel the same way, that's okay. A lot of us are. So be kind to yourself. Give yourself the space to feel whatever you're feeling even if that's five emotions at once. Spend time with the people that you love, make time to do things that bring you joy, and most importantly, speak to someone. Because it's hard to go through difficult times alone. Whether that's a family member that you love or a friend that you trust, reach out. And if things are getting difficult and you need someone to talk to, Samaritans provides free and confidential support 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. To talk to someone who won't judge you or tell you what to do, call Samaritans for free at 116123 or email them at joe at Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Class of 2020. I would really love it if you could rate and review the podcast on iTunes and share it so that it reaches even more students. If you want to get in contact or be a part of the podcast, Email me at classof2020pod at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at classof2020podcasts where we'll be sharing more stories, exclusive clips and resources. This podcast would not be what it is without the amazing students, graduates and experts who so graciously agreed to be interviewed. So I want to say a huge thank you to Molly Davis, Billy Newell and Bruce Hood. I'm Rifaro, this is Class of 2020 and I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Thank you for listening. Bye.
Okay, do you know what the truth in that era is? I think with me, I don't need you to respond. I just need to get my feelings out. And you know me, I will sit here for two hours telling you about my emotions so you can take a nap. Nap all you like. I hope you sleep well. I will. Because I'm going to be here still telling you about my pain. Okay. 